is somebody who, in fact, uh, for this group does not need any introduction. Um, Reverend Dr. Hagen Van Leyden is not only uh, a graduate of the Graduate Theological Union with which the Institute of Buddhist Studies um, is affiliated, but is also one of our faculty who will be continuing to teach for us next year, doing an online class uh, in the history and teachings of Zen. He is also now on the faculty at Loyola University in Chicago, and is the Dharma teacher for the Ancient Dragon Zen Gate in Chicago, uh, a Zen meditation group there. Um, he will be waving around his book, <coughs> which I can assure you is excellent, having read it uh, in, a in an earlier incarnation, uh, and which is also available for purchase in the bookstore. And I'm sure, I'm sure that if you have a pen and have purchased a copy of his book, you can pressure him into signing it for you. Is that a promise? Okay. We'll um, be speaking tonight on visions of awakening space and time, uh, which we were talking earlier is a way of thinking about what is probably the dominant Mahayana worldview uh, and distinct from the kind of overly rationalized, stripped down, um, Protestantized version of Mahayana that we hear in the West have inherited. Um, so with that as an introduction, Reverend Dr. Thank you. It's great to be back here at the Institute of Buddhist Studies. Actually, I haven't left, but I'm here usually only online. Uh, so, uh, uh, first of all, I want to thank Dr. Payne. Uh, Richard was is very much part of this book since this is based on my um, uh, doctoral dissertation in which he was the chair of the committee of and helped quite a lot in terms of figuring out what was wrong with chapter five and <laughs> making it put helping me put a bullet all together. So um, uh, I want to talk about some aspects of this. There's a lot of material in here and uh, I hope there'll be questions and we can have some discussion too. I'll start off with, the, there's various places to start off. Uh, so this is about Dogen and Dogen's relationship to the Lotus Sutra, but I'll start off with the Lotus Sutra. So the focus of the book is the, the central story in the Lotus Sutra, chapters 15 and 16. Uh, and just the brief version in chapter 15, after the Buddha has been through the first half of the sutra, exhorting his disciples and the bodhisattvas to asking them who will, in the distant future evil age of um, wars, on wars of terror and so forth, who will, uh, who, which, who will come and keep alive the Lotus Sutra uh, teachings? And finally, this group of bodhisattvas who have come from some distant galaxy to hear the Lotus Sutra, which they do whenever the Lotus Sutra is being propounded, say, oh, we'll come, we'll come back and, and, and keep alive the Lotus Sutra teachings, and at which point the Buddha says, oh, that's not necessary. And he points to the ground, and from out of the ground instantly emerge vast hordes of bodhisattvas uh, who have been practicing for incalculable ages 
in the open space under the ground. This, so this, the, this is one of the first uh, central images, that the idea of bodhisattvas emerging from under the ground, from under our feet, and that they have been practicing there for a long time and will continue to do so. Um, this leads to Maitreya and the other disciples saying, well, well, who are these guys? Where do they come from? Uh, and the Buddha said, oh, well, I taught them. Uh, and, and, the, uh, and Maitreya, on behalf of the other disciples, says, wait a second, how's that possible? These are obviously venerable, aged beings. We know you left the, the palace 40 years ago and became the Buddha and so forth. And then there's the revelation, the, next, the second part of the story, that when the Buddha says that actually, even though I, I seem to have been born and left the palace and awakened, and, and I'm about to pass into nirvana. Actually, I have been practicing in the, since I awakened for, and then there's this astronomical long period of time, and I will continue to do so for twice that long in the future. So this is kind of upsets the, all the regular versions of the story of Buddha uh, and Buddhism, and is this image of the long-term sustainable, both bodhisattvas right under our feet, under the ground, ready to emerge, and the Buddha being present, omnipresent, for a very long time. Uh, and then he explains that, that some people might not bother to practice themselves if they knew you know, the Buddha was here and they, did, they would feel like they didn't have to practice. So he pretends to uh, enter into Parinirvana and, and then be reborn and so forth. <clears throat> So okay, this is the central story from the Lotus Sutra that, that I deal with in, in this book. And it's the, also the central story of the Lotus Sutra, according to the early Chinese uh, uh, interpreters of the Lotus Sutra. The first half of the sutra is referred to as the cause section. And this is, in this section, this first half of the sutra, the idea is the bodhisattva of the the disciples and the bodhisattvas will practice for many, many, many lifetimes and incalculable ages and do all this rigorous bodhisattva practice. And then, in some future distant age, or sometimes the Buddha tells particular disciples, Mike, in this, some future age you will be the Buddha so-and-so. Um, and uh, so it involves long, long life, lifetimes of practice. But then once there's this story about the bodhisattvas emerging from the ground, and the Buddha being present throughout, there's a shift, and it's a shift in the Lotus Sutra. The second half of the sutra is called the fruit or result of practice section. Going back to uh, Dao Sheng and Ji, great Chinese, early Buddhist Chinese masters. So uh, one of the things I talk about in this book is how this story is kind of the demarcation of two approaches to Mahayana Buddhist practice. The first, most of Indo-Tibetan Mahayana, again, is this, these, this arduous lifetimes of practice. The second, which is extremely important, especially in Japan, but throughout East Asia, is this idea of, well, one way it's described as the shortening of the path, that with faith in the presence of Buddha, that here it is, here's the pyramid. So there's a kind of leap that happens based on the story. There's other ways, in the, there's also the story a little bit earlier in the Lotus Sutra of an eight-year-old uh, daughter of the Nava king who appears to Buddha 
and one of the um, disciples or bodhisattvas says, uh, can it, is it possible to attain Buddhahood very quickly? And he says, yes, watch. And she gives him an offering of uh, some jewels, and, as soon as, and he accepts it, and like that, then she becomes a Buddha. Uh, this is very surprising. She's, first of all, she's a girl. She's only eight years old. She's not even quite human. She's a daughter of a Naka. So anyway, there, there are various images for this. But the story of the Bodhisattvas under the ground and of an emerging and of the Buddha being, if not eternal, present, basically present for a long time. The Buddha is here. Uh, this is a, a kind of marks a leap in the history of Mahayana Buddhism. And uh, you know, there's been a lot of um, scholarship recently looking again at what happened in Kamakura period Japan. So Richard Payne's book on revisioning Kamakura Buddhism is an important part of this. Uh, something happened, and I think it has a lot to do with what's going on in the Lotus Sutra. So out of Tendai Buddhism, the Japanese um, classical Buddhism that held the Lotus Sutra as the main, uh, the, the form of scripture, came uh, Dogen, who I'm going to talk about, Nichiren, but also Shinran and Honen. So it's interesting that Shinran represents this faith Buddhism, you know, in some ways most strikingly of all the great Buddhist masters. Um, he didn't mention the Lotus Sutra, maybe there's a two or three mentions, I think, in, in Shinran's writing of the Lotus Sutra. But still, it's in the background, this possibility of uh, faith mind, of um, not, not through one's effort over lifetimes of practice, but over realizing the reality of Buddha's presence. Uh, something can happen. Um, in the, so I'm going to talk more about Dogen, but in the period after Shinran, in the, in the uh, half century after Dogen, between 1200 to 1253, um, the, probably the most, the best known Pure Land teacher in Japan was Ipen. And he does talk about the Lotus Sutra more than Shinran. Um, Shin, uh, Ipin points out that even in the Lotus Path, one must give up the body and life of the self in order to realize enlightenment. He asserted clearly the Dharma Lotus and the, and the name of Amida are one. The Dharma Lotus is Dharma as color and form. The name of the Nembutsu is Dharma as mind. Since form and perceiving mind are non-dual, the Dharma Lotus is itself the name of Buddha. Thus, the Pure Land Meditation Sutra teaches, the person who utters the Nembutsu is a lotus flower among people. So for Ipen, the Pure Land Nembutsu and the Lotus Sutra Dharma are mutually supporting and ultimately not separate. So this is just one indication of the relationship uh, that all of these figures emerge from. Uh, so I should mention Nichiren. I talk about, uh, in the book I talk about some of the history of this and talk about commentaries on the story of the Lotus Sutra from number of figures in China and Japan. Nichiren and, and the forms of Nichiren Buddhism that have followed from him took the Lotus Sutra as literally the object of devotion. So Namyoho Rengakyo was like, it's like the Nichiren Nobutsu, the, the chanting of the name of the Lotus Sutra and the uh, characters for the Lotus Sutra are the main object of veneration. And of course, they study the Lotus Sutra as well. That's one approach to venerating the Lotus Sutra. What I talk about in the book is how Dogen uses the Lotus Sutra. So Dogen 
Uh, many of you know, but he, he was the founder of what's now called Soto Zen, the Japanese branch of Zen called Soto. And uh, the Lotus Sutra is tremendously important for Dogen. So Dogen also went, went to China and brought back the vast koan or kungan uh, literature of the teaching stories of Chan in China. But he also deeply venerated the Lotus Sutra. He had been a Tantai monk, as all of these figures had, so he was trained in the Lotus Sutra. But he continued to talk about the Lotus Sutra, to refer to the Lotus Sutra. And uh, what I focus on in the book is looking at the specific commentaries that Dogen makes, or references that Dogen makes, to this central story of the Bodhisattvas emerging and the lifespan of the Buddha, and various things that are in those chapters. Um, so a little bit about how Dogen used, sees the Lotus Sutra. Just um, Well, just one quote to start off. This is in um, one of Dogen's uh, great, uh, Dogen wrote a lot. Uh, one of his masterworks is the Shobo Genzo, <clears throat> The True Dharma I Treasury. And in one of the chapters there, which is called Taking Refuge in the Three Treasures, he quotes a passage from the closing verse of chapter 16 about how beings who are beset by their evil karma do not ever hear the name of the three treasures, Buddha Dharma Sangha. Whereas those who are virtu virtuous, gentle, and upright see the enduring presence of the Buddha on Vulture Peak. After quoting that, Dogen says that this Lotus Sutra is itself the single great cause for the appearance of Buddhas. So he <clears throat> substitutes the sutra itself for the intention to awaken all beings that's cited as a single great cause in chapter two of the sutra itself. This is a way, a much subtler way of Dogen kind of holding up the sutra as the core of his teaching and practice. And then he says that the Lotus Sutra, quote, may be said to be the great king and great master of all the various sutras that the Buddha Shakyamuni taught. Compared with this sutra, all the other sutras are merely its servants, its relatives, for it alone expounds the truth. So he, he explicitly, very, very deeply venerates the Lotus Sutra. Uh, there are many examples of this, one more that I'll give is a, from <clears throat> late in his career, from a series of poems on uh, verses on dwelling in the mountains. This is from <clears throat> Dogen's other great work, Ehe Koroku, or Dogen's extensive record. There's this verse where Dogen says, <clears throat> how delightful, mountain dwelling, so solitary and tranquil. Because of this, I always read the Lotus Blossom Sutra. With wholehearted vigor under trees, what is there to love or hate? How enviable, sound of evening rains in deep autumn. So this uh, deep appreciation of the Lotus Sutra runs through, throughout uh, Dogen's writings. Uh, another, just one more example, in the meal chant that's commonly said in uh, Soto Zen before meals are, are taken, and some of you know this chant very well, he took the 10 names of Buddha that are chanted in that chant in, in China, and he added the wondrous Dharma, Lotus, the, Dhar, the Dhar, wondrous Dharma Sutra, Dharma Flower Sutra. So he added the Lotus Sutra as actually a name of Buddha. He, he went to, to that, those lengths. So, okay, how is it that Dogen's <clears throat> using the Lotus Sutra? 
what I want to get to is talking about the, the worldview that, in some ways, was the basic background of Mahayana in medieval Japan, as Richard was saying. Uh, we don't understand it so well because we've received this kind of, I don't know, Protestant or this kind of modern, rational, Western view of the Mahayana. But this worldview of um, reality as a bodhisattvic agent of space and time and the earth itself as part of the work of awakening uh, is uh, very deep in medieval Japanese Buddhist worldview and very much something that Dogen plays with and turns and, and uh, demonstrates. And he specifically uses this story from the Lotus Sutra to do that. But I want to say a little bit about um, another aspect of Dogen and how he uses the sutra rather than as a kind of icon like Nietzsche does. Um, it has to, uh, Richard and I uh, edited together a book called um, Discourse in Ideology in Medieval Japanese Buddhism. Is that, did I get it right? Um, and part of what was going on then is a shift in the way people talked and the way, and, and the rhetorical style and uh, how people saw the Buddhist practice. And so part of what Dogen uses in the Lotus Sutra is to work with the images and the imagination and the parables and the visions of the Lotus Sutra uh, as a way of expressing what he was trying to say about, we could say, Zen truth or just Buddhist truth. Um, so I'll quote a couple of scholars about this. Uh, First from George Tanabe, Jr. Uh, this is actually from his book on Miyue, who was another figure in Kamakura period from the traditional uh, Shingon and Keigon schools, a uh, very dynamic figure who, uh, I talk about this in, in, in the book too, and uh, I can talk about it more if people have questions, but he actually in a very, had a very different response to, this, to the second story of the Lotus Sutra than Dogen. But Miyue um, is known now for having had a very extensive green journal, which he kept over a 40-year period, and being very involved in visions and, and dreams and using those in his teaching. One of Dogen's successors a few generations later, Kazan, considered the second founder of Soto Zen, also uh, was very involved in dreams. Anyway, talking of, in, in the context of talking about uh, Miyue Tanabe talks about the fantastic as an important aspect of Buddhist teaching. Um, and he's talking about this in terms of the flower ornament or Avatamsaka Sutra, which Miyue particularly venerated, which is a very kind of psychedelic samadhi text. But uh, he also talks about the Lotus Sutra. Tanabe says about the Lotus Sutra. The Lotus Sutra is less a work of memory and more a product of fantasy inspired with new visions derived internally. So this Lotus Sutra um, is not, it's not so much the, uh, it calls for examination of the significance and function of its imagery as much as, if not more than, its philosophy and its philosophical doctrines. Tanabe says, visions are central to the East Asian Buddhist experience, but little has been done by way of research of them. Mahayana Buddhism is, among many things it can be, a tradition of the mind's faculty for producing images in both waking life and sleep. A tradition that is of fantasy producing visions 
and dreams, which were interpreted by the dreamers for their own meanings, and which can be, to add a modern aspect, read by us for their feelings. It will be possible to gain a better understanding of Mahayana Buddhism as a vehicle, not only of ideas and institutions, but of human emotion as well, only when studies of the fantastic end of the spectrum become more available. So we're not used to thinking of Buddhism that way. Uh, I, maybe in, in Shin studies, uh, I, I, I taught English for a little while across from Rokakuto, where, where, where Shinran had his great vision of, of Kanon. Uh, so visions were very much part of the everyday experience of Mahayana Buddhism in that, in that time. And yet we have a tendency, I think, maybe among practitioners as well, but certainly in the academy, of uh, you know, focusing on what are the teachings, what are the doctrines, what is the philosophy. But to look at how Mahayana Buddhism has existed, going back to then and still, as an actual vehicle of practice by human beings, and to seeing, see the human quality, but we have to look at this other side, the, which we might think of as fantastic or visionary. One other reference to that, more specifically about Dogen himself, this is from um, Heejin Kim, uh, one of the great commenta modern commentators on Dogen, from his book, uh, A. Dogen, Mystical Realist. He says, Dogen was a religious thinker, not merely or even primarily a philosopher. Dogen's most philosophic moments were permeated by his practical religious concern, against the background of which his philosophic activities stand out most clearly in their truest significance. What Dogen presents to us is not a well-defined, well-knit philosophical system, but rather a loose nexus of exquisite mythopoeic imaginings and profound philosophical visions. I, I, I like that phrase, a loose nexus of exquisite mythopoeic imaginings. Anyway, uh, so this is uh, the tradition that's, that uh, of Dogen and Zen, and uh, yet we don't understand it so much as that. <coughs> tend to think of uh, meditation practice as uh, some kind of calming, therapeutic kind of uh, spiritual exercise. And yet there's this deep um, underground current of bodhisattvas ready to emerge. Uh, this is what the Lotus Sutra teaches, and this is actually what Dogen was talking about a lot. Uh, so. Okay, shifting to Dogen a little bit more and what he, what he's, where he's coming from in terms of this. Uh, my first interest in this, in this question of space and time, comes from one of Dogen's earliest writings called Bento Wa, Talk on Wholehearted Practice of the Way. And there's a section in there called the Self-Fulfillment Samadhi. Jijiyu Zamai in Japanese, which is chanted uh, often in Soto temples in America, too. Um, and near the beginning of this, Dogen says something that is mind-boggling, and I've been kind of trying to, I don't know, get my head in between for 30 years. Dogen avows that when one person sits upright in meditation, but displaying the Buddha mudra with one's whole body and mind, that everything in the entire Dharma world becomes Buddha mudra, and all space in the universe completely becomes enlightened. 
or we could say all space in the universe completely awakens. So what does it mean that space awakens? So this is so putting this together with this image, this story in the Lotus Sutra is, is where this book comes from and this uh, study. So a lot of things to be said about that. But just a little bit more from that from that um, extraordinary section of, of this very early writing by Dogen, kind of the foundational writing about meditation by Dogen. He says that uh, earth, grasses and trees, fences and walls, tiles and pebbles, all things in the Dharma realm in ten directions carry out Buddha work. And moreover, and quite significantly, the meditator and the particular elements of the world are intimately and imperceptibly assist each other. So again, this is not our you know, Protestant rational kind of idea of what's going on. And this is not, uh, clearly uh, for Shin people, this is not uh, uh, self-power. He's talking about how um, the practitioner is informed and benefited and, inter and assisted by well, not in this case, not by Amida Buddha, but by the whole phenomenal world. We can say the Dharmakaya Buddha. Um, so this is kind of the starting place for Dogen. And so from that, I start. I, I, I try to look at where um, Dogen referred to this story particularly, and how that shows that the. Well, I talked about it in terms of Earth itself, the fertility of the Earth, the ground beneath us, um, and the possibility of bodhisattvas emerging. So one of the things that clearly Dogen does uh, with this story is to use it as an encouragement. He says in various ways that people who are practicing now, by which he meant the 13th century uh, Japan, um, are in some ways like the, or maybe they are, the bodhisattvas emerging from under the ground and are informed by the Buddha's presence. Nichiren did that in a very different way. It's interesting, Nichiren, in, in a lot of ways, used this story as an encouragement to people uh, to believe in Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, his sense of, of that. But um, Nichiren actually, in a few places, says that, seems to indicate that he himself was an incarnation of one of the four leaders of the, of the underground bodhisattvas. So he kind of claims that in a very literal way. Uh, Dogen does it more metaphorically by talking about our practice being uh, inspired by these bodhisattvas under the ground. So he uses this story as a way to encourage the students. Um, but then very strikingly, he talks about, it, so this is very much not nearly psychological or anthropocentric. He's talking about the fabric of reality itself. And it seems like that's the level that Mahayana Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhist worldview, at least in medieval Japan, worked on. Doesn't mean to exclude the human and the psychological, but space itself awakening. Well, one aspect of this is, and Duncan says this very clearly in lots of ways in, in many places, um, and he says it's about space and equally about time. So I'll talk a little bit about both of them, and then maybe we can have some discussion. Um, he talks about space, and he makes it clear that space and time are not 
how we often think of them as some kind of external objective container. So we think of space as you know, the space between us or the space of you know, within which the IBS building is located or you know, we have this dimensional sense of space and often we think of space as empty space. You know, the, 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 the space between my mouth and the sounds of these words in your ears and hearing these words. Okay, but space is more than that. Um, there's a story, kind of cute story, that from the koan, from the, from the Zen literature that he uses um, to talk about this. And in one of his essays called Space, he tells about a story of two Zen teachers, uh, older and younger, drummer brother. And the older one says, do you know how to grasp space? And the younger one says, yes, I do. And the older one says, how do you grasp it? And the younger one stroked the air with his hand. And the older one said, you don't know how to grasp space. And the younger one said, how do you grasp it, older brother? And she gone, grasped his younger brother's nose and yanked. And the Chinese reading, it might, it might even be that he stuck his fingers in the guy's nostril or pulled. Um, anyway, the, the younger one yelled in pain, you're killing me, you tried to pull my nose off. And the other one said, you can grasp it now. So space is not just the empty space between. Space is you know, the space between our ears, the space you know, between our, our head and our toes. Space is all of reality. So, so Dogen is famous for, uh, as Kim calls it, this mytho-poetic imaginings. He plays with language, he plays with images, or particularly, uh, in a fantastic kind of way to make his point. So there's another essay. Well, a, first of all, there's a, there's a kind of pun here. Uh, the character Ku. Um, I could. Uh, I'll, I'll skip this. The character. The character Ku, which means space, also means sky, and it also means emptiness. In the Heart Sutra, where it says form is exactly emptiness, emptiness is exactly form. It's the same character. So when we talk about space, depending on the context of what he's writing, it could be space, it could be sky, it could be emptiness. Usually it's very clear what he means, space or sky, but there's this overtone of emptiness. So there's this an essay, another essay where he talks about the flowers of space, which could be read as the flowers in the sky, or even the flowers of emptiness, or the flowering of emptiness, or space. Anyway, this, this writing um, is, circles around a quote from the Surangama Sutra, in which Shakyamuni Buddha says, it is like a person who has clouded eyes, seeing flowers in space. If the sickness of clouded eyes is cured, flowers vanish in space. So this is a kind of standard Buddhist image that we have uh, obstructions before our eyes so we can't see how things really are. Where we have the obstructions of greed and anger and delusion, three poisons, and we can't see the reality of Buddha nature, the reality of the and yet, Dogen turns this image, flat, so this, 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 this compound, uh, space flowers or sky flowers, is also used to mean cataracts, literally catar you know, cataracts on your, on your eye that, uh, that uh, literally obstruct space. But Dogen turns it around completely to, to kind of valorize the flowering of space, the flowers of space as the Buddha's practice. 
just to read a, uh, well, one section of what Dogen says. There are the flowers of space in which the world honored one speaks. Yet people of small knowledge and small experience do not know of the colors, brightness, petals, and flowers of flowers in space. And they can scarcely even hear the words flowers in space. Remember, in Buddhism there is talk of flowers in space. In non-Buddhism they do not even know, much less understand, this talk of flowers in space. Only the Buddhas and ancestors know the blooming and falling of flowers in space and flowers on the ground. Only they know the blooming and falling of flowers in the world. Only they know that flowers in space, flowers on the ground, and flowers in the world are sutras. This is the standard for learning the state of Buddha, because flowers in space are the vehicle upon which the Buddha ancestors ride. The Buddhist world and all the Buddha's teachings are just flowers in space. So this is a, a kind of playing with images that Dogen does in, in a number of different kinds of contexts, where he takes an image for delusion and turns it into, uh, this is where Buddhist practice, this is how Buddhist practice, this is the practice of Buddhas. So uh, one of Dogen's main, one could say, a rhetorical strategy is to show not, to express non-duality, to cut through our usual ideas of good and bad and delusion and enlightenment. And uh, enlightenment is not something separate from delusion. How do we, in the deluded human world, experience awakening? They're not separate. Um, and since I'm here at the Institute of Buddhist Studies, and uh, there are some scholars here, myself included, I'll, um, he also says in this, in this, um, in this uh, essay on flowers and space, Bodhi, Nirvana, the Dharma body, selfhood, and so on are two or three petals of five petals opened by a flower in space. It is like a person who has clouded eyes seeing flowers in space. Uh, oh no, he's, then, he, then he quotes the Buddha saying this. It is like a person who has clouded eyes seeing flowers in space. If the sickness of clouded eyes is cured, flowers vanish in space. And Dogen says, because scholars do not know flowers in space, they do not know a person who has clouded eyes. Do not see a person who has clouded eyes. Do not meet a person who has clouded eyes. And do not become a person who has clouded eyes. Through meeting a person who has clouded eyes, we should know flowers in space and should see flowers in space. When we get seeing flowers in space, we can also see flowers vanish in space. So anyway, he, um, by playing with the kind of writings of Buddhist scholars, uh, he's, he's pointing out that space itself is what flowers in, in awakening. Um, there are many other examples of how he, how he um, uses images of space to show, the sp show space itself being involved with uh, awakening. He, in this, he, commenting on a section of the Lotus Sutra where there's a, uh, a stupa of an ancient Buddha who appears in the middle of the air. And uh, it's said that this ancient Buddha comes and appears in the middle of the air whenever Buddha is preaching the Lotus Sutra. So this is right in the Lotus Sutra. Anyway, that's a whole other part of the, the uh, mysterious as aspect of the Lotus Sutra. But Dogen says, space makes space for the stupa. Space is an active agent for Buddhas. Um, there are many other examples of this. 
want to say a little bit about time and how it's parallel for Dogen. Uh, so probably one of the most famous, uh, best known essays by Dogen, uh, most difficult essays by Dogen, is called Being Time, or Uji. Uh, and he talks about time in this, again, in this way as not some objective external container, but as actually our being. Time depends on our existence. Our being is time. Time is not something separate and outside. He says we, we, should, we should honor the side of time that it has to do with 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and it's almost time for me to stop talking. But um, he, he also talks about time as actually the quality of our being. So this is very much analogous to what he does with space, uh, to show, and, and, he, and I, I'm going to talk about it in terms of this essay, but he uses the image of the, the uh, enduring Buddha of the uh, 16th chapter of the Lotus Sutra very much to show this. Uh, so there are many, many uh, references to the Buddha's enduring and everlasting quality as a way of showing how time itself is supporting our awakening, supporting our uh, faith and activity as uh, Buddhist devotees. But a little bit about this essay being time. Uh, for Dogen, time, as we have seen for space, is not some intractable, merely external container within which beings are caught. So he does, he, he encourages people to question time, to really look at what is our time and how time moves in many directions. And, you know, there's 8 o'clock, 8.15, 8.30, but there's also, we can remember, uh, some of us can remember previous events in this room. Some of us can imagine future events in this room. Uh, time moves in many different directions. So he says, all beings are time, just as earth, grasses and trees, fences and walls, tiles and pebble, all things in the Dharma realm of the universe carry out Buddha work in our space, when beings fully express themselves right now, that is time. Dogen says the sharp, vital, quick of dharmas dwelling in their dharma positions is itself being time, or time being. Beings cannot help but fully express their deepest truth right now. One cannot avoid being time. And then he says, even a partial, half-hearted exertion of being time is completely a partial being time. Even the being time of a, you know, Dogen, quoting Dogen, even the being time of a partial exhaustive penetration is an exhaustive penetration of a partial being time. So in some ways this is profoundly consoling. We may feel like we're not really present, and yet that not really present is the reality of our time right now. Um, but also, he, he emphasizes that we are responsible for time. That we have a, that, that um, uh, another reference to this. Oops. Well, the page number that I put down here is a blank page, so. <laughs> <laughs> so time is playing tricks on us. Anyway, um, uh, at any rate, he, he, he talks about how. Um, we're responsible for being time, it's our effort that makes this time. So the point is that um, 
through this conjunction of how Dogen uses the Lotus Sutra, he's expressing this, um, from our modern perspective, profoundly weird idea of reality itself. Space and time and the earth itself are living bodhisattvic agents supporting us, helping us to find our own way to connect with the Buddhas. And um, so maybe I'll just stop there. There's a, there are many more aspects of this, but um, you may have some questions or comments. So let's do that. Well, we do have opportunity now to pursue particular topics of interest to you. So please uh, don't be shy. Yes, uh, Do you by any chance, uh, uh, do you by any chance have any theory about why Shinran did not emphasize the Lotus Sutra? Well, when I was talking about when I was working on this material, I asked lots of IBS students about that. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I should, I should, uh, uh, san do you have any? <laughs> 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 oh. <laughs> I need to spend a couple of days to talk about it. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Are we still planning to publish the article by the Professor Asada? Or he talked about the why she would not quote the. Lotus Sutra, and, but one of the reasons is uh, he need to respond to the uh, uh, question raised by the Tendai scholars. And, uh, but he was very skillfully uh, cited, or not cite the Lotus Sutra, so uh, he doesn't be really draw into it. <laughs> And, but in reality, he uh, used lots of Tendai terminology, which you can go back to uh, Lotus Sutra. But uh, instead of citing Lotus Sutra, he cited the uh, Nirvana Sutra, which is equal value to the uh, Lotus Sutra. And also a couple of other uh, sutras which uh, talk about the uh, one vehicle theory. But uh, so if you're a Tendai scholar, you can tell Shinran is not citing the Lotus Sutra on purpose. <laughs> But he can also prove that he knows the teaching of the Lotus Sutra very well. Yes, yes. So. Good, yes. Uh, yeah, that, that, uh, and I think that's an interesting point that he was just avoiding getting involved with um, you know, all his debates with the Tendai people by just not mentioning the Lotus Sutra. I think there, I, I talked with Harry Bridges about this a lot when I was working on this at one point, and he said there are maybe two or three references to the Lotus Sutra specifically, but not many. But, but yes, I think. Shinran definitely came out of the same tradition. Please. Um, I just want to comment. Uh, when you talk about the dream um, aspect of it, of the, uh, you know, from the meditation, um, I know uh, Master Jiu had uh, wrote a whole book on her visions, and she said they were not dreams. They were uh, because you could actually see them with your eyes open. Or she was awake when she had them there, and she was—I I wouldn't say criticized, but they were severely questioned 
about whether or not this was true then or true Buddhism, because there's something very little experience uh, about it written. And so it was, but she did send her material back and it was verified that um, it was consistent with the uh, ancestral line that there were people like Kazan, etc. Kazan's a prominent example, but Dogen also Dogen refers to dreams and has a whole essay which uh, I, could, I, could I could talk about for another hour about expressing the dream within a dream. So uh, it's part of the Zen tradition. And in medieval Soto there were, uh, and Rinzai, there were other people. Uh, one of the things I was going to mention and didn't is that uh, in addition to Dogen being very connected with the Lotus Sutra, I uh, talk about some of the later figures. Hakuin from the Rinzai school was very much devoted to the Lotus Sutra in his later uh, later in his career, he had a great, a great awakening reading the Lotus Sutra a little later on. Uh, Ryokan, a uh, very famous Soto fool in the uh, 18th, 19th century, had cherished the Lotus Sutra. So many scholars think of uh, Soto Zen as had not been connected with the Lotus Sutra. Lotus Sutra is Nichiren school or Tenda school. But it's very much there. And even uh, Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, who founded the San Francisco Zen Center, which I'm affiliated with. Um, when he, uh, so I have a section about him in here, and his lectures on the Lotus Sutra. When he came to America, um, he lectured about the Blue Cliff Record, a koan collection, which you might expect, and about the Sandokai, or Harmony of Difference and Sameness, which is the Soto uh, teaching poem. But he also lectured at Tassahara, 67 to 69, about the Lotus Sutra. According to one student there, it was deadly boring, but continued to, <laughs> continued to lecture about it. I'm sure you know, David just didn't understand it. But uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, so, so it was important enough to Suzuki Roshi to keep mentioning. So I think it is this, this Lotus Sutra with all of its parables and this, can, and this kind of subtext of the fantastic is very deep in Soto Zen. And, Jiyu Kenet was trained at Shojiji, which was the temple founded by Kazon. So um, this point about appreciating the visionary, um, whether it's dreaming or visions, actually both have been used. And in some sense, in the medieval Buddhist tradition, there was they didn't make a distinction between sleeping dreams and visions that one, I, there's a few people here like me have spent uh, early mornings at Tassahara half you know, with our eyes sort of open and half awake, and yet things, things kind of like dream seem to appear, and yeah. Yes, good day. Yeah, my, my question is relating to the, um, the state of awakening according to Dogen. Is there a space and time? <laughs> space and time are empty. And, and there's nothing but space and time. And we are space and time. Um, this is one answer. Uh, <laughs> a more prosaic answer. Um, yeah, he, so um, he, there's, a, there's a wonderful little essay. Let me see if I can find it. I bet I can. Uh, in which Dogen uh, is called. Um, Tempo written, um, turning the Dharma wheel, and he. Um, hold on, I will find it. Oh, good. Yes. Um, he. I think this, you know, the Zen style is to answer questions with images rather than some philosophical position. 
in this, in this uh, essay, which he repeats in one of his uh, Dharma Hall discourses in, in Ikoroku, he starts off with a saying about space by Shakyamuni Buddha, again from the Surangama Sutra, um, in which the uh, Shakyamuni says, when one person opens up reality and returns to the source, all space in the ten directions disappears. So, in some sense, that's space is emptiness and space, in awakening there's no space. But then Dogen cites four different classical Chinese Zen teachers who make variations on the statement. Um, one of them says, uh, when one person opens up reality and returns to the source, all space in the ten directions crashes together, resounding everywhere. So, space makes a big noise, and space is, uh, I don't know if space is there, but space is, is, is happening. Um, the second one says, when one person opens up reality and returns to the source, flower, in, in all of space, flowers are added on brocade. So it's kind of a sweet, flowery version. When one, another one says, when one person opens up reality and returns to the source, all space in the ten directions is simply all space. I like that one. Then Dogen quotes his own teacher who says, when one person opens up reality and returns to the source, a mendicant breaks his rice bowl. <clears throat> no more self-effort. Um, but Dogen then gives his own version. In Dogen's own version, he says, when one person opens up reality and returns to the source, all space in the ten directions opens up reality and returns to the source. So again, space itself awakens. So uh, that's the better answer than I can give. It occurs to me that one of the aspects of the Lotus Sutra that lies in the background of um, basically all of Japanese Buddhism, Nichirenshu, Shinshu, Zenshu, and so on, uh, is the Ekiyan, is the single vehicle teaching. Um, and the very, not only the idea of the foreshortening of the path, that practice is awakening, but also the idea that the goal is Buddhahood, that it's not Bodhisattvahood, that that comes out of the Lotus Sutra and is a unifying background feature of all of Japanese Buddhism, uh, pure land as much as Zen as and all the rest. Would you care to comment? Um, yeah, well, it's it, that the one vehicle teaching is subtle and in some ways problematic. And we've talked about this, the whole idea of skillful means. That, that one way to say it is that all of the different forms of, we could say of Buddhism, but we could also just say of spiritual activity, are part of the overall work of everyone realizing Buddha. And in some ways I think this is a very important idea, particularly in a modern pluralistic society we have all these religions and some of them are fighting with each other and so forth, to, to see the way in which all spiritual traditions, or we could just say all Buddhism, but anyway, um, make it broad, all, that all spiritual activity is aimed at this one goal of universal awakening. Uh, the problematic side of it is that people who talk, and this is in the, it's problematic right in the Lotus Sutra, it's certainly problematic 
in Nichiren Buddhism and you know in the sectarianism of Japanese Buddhism, where you know people can say, well, all of all of all of the aspects of all of the different Buddhist traditions are part of the one vehicle, and you know they're they're the uh, subordinate ones to ours. <laughs> so there's a kind of hierarchical way of understanding it. But I think we can choose how we see it and how we use this idea of the one vehicle. And if we and if we see it in collaboration and cooperation, then um, Shinshu and Zenshu and Ichiranshu and Shinkanshu and so forth, we can all you know work together in doing the Buddha's work. And then we have to guard against thinking, well, you know, um, either way, you know, well, Shinshu, Shinran, Shinran is wonderful. And, and these Zen Shu people are just, you know, they're involved in self-effort. Or, you know, the other way around, Zen has the true dharma, and, well, well, you know, we'll talk to the Jodo Shin Shu people sometimes, but uh, I don't think we should, I don't think we'd have to do that. So, uh, there, the one vehicle teaching requires some maturity. Maybe some people have comments on that. Or anything else? Yes? Wow. I think there's a line in the Abhidhamsaka Sutra that something about Buddhas and Bodhisattvas rising up at every point in space. Yes. Uh, so I wonder if the Abhidhamsaka Sutra could be an influence on Dogen's ideas about space as well as the Lotus Sutra. Yes. Uh, well, I said <laughs> the Abhidhamsaka Sutra, uh, sure. Um, and they're not really separate. Um, but yes, the Abhidhamsaka Sutra you know, it talks about Buddhas appearing on the tips of every blade of grass and, and every atom there, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Yeah. So, uh, again, we don't have to see them in, as, as, you know, in a comparative way. Uh, Dogen, but, but what's important is, in terms of seeing the history of this, Dogen refers to the Avatamsaka Sutra a little bit, and it's certainly very much part of the background of Soto Zen dialectics and the Soto Zen five-rank system and so forth. But, um, and I talk about the Avatamsaka actually a fair amount in the book, but Dogen himself cites the Lotus Sutra when he's talking about this stuff. Dogen uses the Lotus Sutra, and that's one of the main points I'm trying to make again, that, Lotus, that, that Dogen, much, many, much more than any other sutra, mentions the Lotus Sutra, refers to lines from the Lotus Sutra. Knew the, it was, he, Dogen was a master of the koan literature, too. He's, he could throw off lines from you know, all these different teaching stories from these different... Uh, uh, Zen people in China, but he also throws in lines from the Lotus Sutra all over the place. So trying to go through and find the, the, the references to chapters, you know, 15 and 16 was interesting, and there's just a lot of material. I didn't include everything, but I, but the main, the major ones, and where he talks about it too, in terms of particularly in terms of expressing this idea of the imminence of Buddhism Bodhisattvas, the Bodhisattvas in our own practice, the, the Buddhas all around us. He specifically uses this story from the Lotus Sutra a lot. And, but of course, the Avatamsaka Sutra is there in the background for all of them. Is there a particular phase of Buddha's, of Dogen's life and development that he really focused on the Lotus Sutra more? Can you tell from kind of the, the time period in which he wrote and, and referred to that? Or that, that that was a particular kind of phase of his life? Uh, thank you for asking me, uh, No, actually, it's very clear that he refers to the Lotus Sutra throughout all of his career. It's in the earliest, it's in the earliest writings, and it's in the latest writings. All, it's, it's a constant throughout his writings. 
uh, I have a section on that. There was, there's even a story which um, they say now is probably, uh, the, the, the scholars at Komazawa kind of doubt that it's true, but it's interesting that it's part of the uh, lore of Soto Zen that when Zoket was dying uh, in his last illness, when he went back to Kyoto for Meiheiji, That um, yeah, that um, he spent his last days, last few days. The story goes doing walking meditation around a pillar, reciting a passage from Chapter 21 of the Lotus Sutra, uh, in which Shakyamuni is addressing directly the Bodhisattvas from under the ground. Uh, so he he was. This is the story, and now Komazawa scholars um, uh, doubt it, but it's in the Kenseki, the first one of the early, but biographies of Dogen, and the, uh, it was a, a layman's house in Kyoto, a student of, of Dogen, which, and Dogen named the room where he was, where he was during this period, the Lotus Sutra Hermitage. Anyway, that's the story. There's so many references to the Lotus Sutra all through. It's, it's really extraordinary that, uh, um, you know, and I traced that in the book, how, how the Lotus Sutra appears in all the different periods. And that's an important point in terms of Dogen studies because there's been a lot of discussion of the early, late, early Dogen and late Dogen, and um, that's mostly Dogen's shift was not about ch changing his views of anything. Really, he changed his style of, of teaching in some ways. There's some shifting emphases. Um, Steve Hines' most recent book about Dogen goes through that that history and nuances it much more clearly. So it's not it's it's not the case that there was an early Dogen and a late Dogen, and they're really different. But anyway, one way to see that is how the Lotus Sutra is all through. Um, I was interested in the point you made early in your talk about um, two different paths to enlightenment that you see um, in the Lotus Sutra. One, the more, it sounded like you were saying the more common one is that it requires practice for a thousand lifetimes over and over again. And yet there's another image which is held up, which is of sudden, um, instant, full enlightenment. Um, I'm from the Christian tradition myself, and it reminds me of the traditional uh, Reformation debate within Christianity about whether salvation is found through works or through faith alone. And uh, I wonder if you could just comment on that. It seems to be a perhaps common thread in religious traditions of how salvation is, or enlightenment is actually uh, comes about. And so I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about that, whether that's operative in different streams within Buddhism, or um, whether it's operative actually at the same time. Very good question. Very interesting question. Um, yeah, there does seem to be this kind of tension. So I, in, in Buddhism, I don't know that we can put it in terms of works versus faith exactly, but there's, there's an analogy there. And again, in terms of Dogen particularly, and this idea of non-duality, he kind of overcomes that tension. But let me get to that. Um, so the first, the first side is uh, actually I would say both are present in all of any, in all forms of Buddhism in a certain, in a certain way. Maybe in Jodo Shinshu is the most radical, you know, kind of faith alone, one of the most radical faith alone kind of approaches. But um, and, and maybe. Um, someone from Jodhishinji could comment on that. But there is this tradition that's 
uh, very dominant in Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, and it's in Chinese Buddhism, and it's in some parts of Japanese Buddhism. Of this. The other side is, you can see, one way to talk about it is a leap of faith, another way is in terms of the shortening of the path to, 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 to realize the Buddhaness or the Buddha nature, or however you want to talk about that, to realize Shinjin, to realize this, then uh, the pure land opens right now. Um, I don't think we have to see them as totally separate. So one of the things that Dogen does is to, to talk about, you know, there, there are many, so the Avatamsaka Sutra was mentioned, that's a sutra which has this, you know, wild vision, but also talks about many stages of practice it has within it, the Ten Sages Sutra. So there are many, many systems in Buddhism of stages of practice. And I, the way Dogen talks about it, I would say, is that in each stage, you can see, you can realize, you know, the Buddha nature there. So they don't have. So this, the two, the two approaches don't have to be mutually exclusive. In some sense, they can. They can. They have the potential to be um, operating together. But it's an it's an interesting issue, I think, in in all religious uh, endeavor. You know, to what extent do we have to work? arduously at our spiritual exercises and to what extent can we just realize uh, the wondrousness of the world. Um, one of the things that Dogen did though particularly is in terms of this, I, it, the, in, and this goes back to the Tendai teaching that he came out of and the, ten, the Kongaku was called the original enlightenment idea uh, that was part of Tendai during his, during the 13th century. Um, Dogen very much criticizes people who think that if I just have some intellectual understanding of Buddha nature or the original nature of enlightenment, or if I just have some deep experiential kensho or seeing into the, um, the reality of Buddha nature, then we don't have to practice. So this may be a difference with uh, Shinshu, but I think there's a way to see that it's not. But, um, Dogen very much emphasized that even when you see this, it's important to keep practicing. Uh, it's important to keep, so maybe from a Shinshu, you know, I, I shouldn't speak for Shinshu, but maybe from a Shinshu point of view, it, to continue to uh, appreciate Shinshu or something like that. Uh, that but at any rate, it's, it's not that um, one abandons practice, one abandons devotion, when one sees this reality, but actually the, the effect of that reality is the ongoing practice. So Dogen emphasizes how Shakyamuni Buddha continued to awaken and, and, and meditate every day after his so-called Great Awakening. So anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating question.